0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conversation. I am John Idyrholl, I'm gonna be doing a little interview in just a minute, but you're also gonna wanna stick around for the second half of the show. Anna Kasparian is gonna be back in, and Dr. Lawrence Lessig is gonna be joining her. So you are definitely not going to want to miss that. But before we get to Larry Lessig and all of that talk, let's dive into the climate crisis. We're joined now by representative for We Don't Have Time, Shada Chakraborty, welcome to The Conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having
0: me. Uh, Glad to have you here and uh, hoping to learn a lot about the climate plans on offer in this Democratic primary. Before we talk about particular individual candidates, though, I am curious from your point of view, in comparison to past Democratic fields in a presidential year, overall, how would you rate the specificity of their plans, the, um, the understanding that they seem to show for the climate crisis that we face?
1: Sure. And so that's what really stands out for this election year is the ambitious nature of all the plans across all the candidates. And there's a reason for this, right? I mean, we are in the midst of this insane wildfires that's, that are going on in Australia, not to mention what we experienced in California earlier this year. Indonesia's experienced similar things, so has Siberia. There's so many examples of impacts of climate change, that it's not surprising that people are increasingly aware and demanding that their elected representatives address it and do something about it. So Pew poll has shown that The majority of Americans don't think that the US government in particular is doing enough to address climate change and that nine out of 10 Democrats demand and expect more. So it's coming from that background of what's going on around the world, what the public polls are showing that is uh, voters are concerned about. And then in addition to that, you have the enhanced enhancing all of the sentiment. These global activism, activist movements that range from young girls like Greta Thunberg, who are taking time off school to do future for Fridays. And her whole message is, why am I going to school and caring about my future if those who are elected and those who are meant to be looking out for us and our futures don't even care. So ranging from her and her activism that has spurred not just her generation, but across generations, all the way to Jane Fonda, who's using her celebrity platform at age 82 to strike in Washington, DC, which she calls fire Joe Fridays that have Mm -hmm. That has been inspired by Thunberg's Future for Fridays. And then you see extent, Extinction Rebellion and additional <laughs> activist movements and existing left groups like Sierra Club, like Greenpeace, that are all just creating this groundswell of demand for candidates to really step up and to really display ambitious climate plans. So, what we're seeing has never been seen before, not since the last pres- presidential election, not even in the last six months. A lot of the details have only just begun to become more specific.
0: You know, And I'm curious too, um, I I guess it might seem a little bit weird to start off by talking about a candidate who's no longer in the race. But Jay Inslee, of the candidates that have made their race really about one thing, he was very focused uh, on the climate. Uh, He's out now, but um, how big of an influence would you say he's had on the stances that the remaining candidates have staked out on this issue?
1: So I would say that despite him not being in the Uh, in the election run at the moment, he still was responsible for drawing out the blueprint that would actually implement the Green New Deal in any real way. So he has 200 pages of just a policy wonk fest, a lot of people have referred (laughs) to it as. But it really represents a career that was devoted to environmental issues. And so for that reason, to dismiss uh, the work and his legacy and how much good ideas could really be borrowed from that would be a real shame. So I'm actually very happy to see that those that are running like Warren and Sanders have um, taken from the best ideas and the shared ideas that he's put forward and have adopted them. Because it's not new to borrow and steal good policy. And in this case, it's really necessary. We need to see the Green New Deal implemented. And here's a real way to do it.
0: Yeah. So the the thing that has at times frustrated me throughout this primary is that virtually all of the candidates have said that they support the Green New Deal, but they clearly don't mean the same thing when they use that term. And so I've seen recently the uh, Sunrise Movement had a, a they, they had grading that they put out for a couple of the candidates. But from your point of view, as you've seen them, the, the plans that they've put out, but also the frequency with which they talk about climate change, how they seem to prioritize it. Who? What are some of the candidates that so far in the field have stood out to you as really taking this seriously?
1: Right, and so you've got different ratings and gradings based on which sort of um, groups that you're looking at and how they've uh, endorsed or supported these different candidates. And so Sanders has really stood out at post Inslee as the new yardstick from which to measure all the other candidates in terms of how ambitious his plan is and to what extent he's overhauling societal structures and systems as we've become accustomed to and how much he's talking about them needing to change for this new normal that will be the planet at minimum 1.5 degrees warmer by the end of the century. Now remember we're already on average, one degree Celsius warmer from pre-industrial levels. And look at the impacts that we're experiencing currently concurrently around the world. So the fact that we want to keep the overall warming to just half a degree Celsius higher at max by the end of the century means that we really need to take aggressive action. So what that means is that by mid century, we need to get to net neutral carbon emissions, which is something that all the candidates and the Green New Deal supports and Is behind and the plans all um, aim to get to that goal. And then what that means is by 2030, as a benchmark to ensure that we get to net neutral by 2050, we need to make sure that we have halved all carbon emissions globally. And that is why you keep hearing in the headlines and across the news that these next 10 years are so critical because we really need to have carbon emissions by then as that benchmark to ensure that we know more than warm 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. So Sanders plan says that 16 he will he will devote $16 trillion of public funding to make that happen. The issue though here, despite that being extremely ambitious and accurate in terms of that's the amount of If you're gonna do it publicly, the amount of money you would need to be able to implement that vision. He's also calling for trillion dollar overhauls across other sectors like healthcare and education. And what worries me is it sounds a little bit like, it sounds like that senior class student president who promises to cut cafeteria, sorry, cut school to four days a week and make cafeteria lunches free and to end pop quizzes. It's a lot. And so there's more measured Responses to reaching those goals that have been set out by the UN and that have majority global consensus. And that's Warren's plan. She's adopted also endorsed and adopted the Green New Deal as have the majority of the candidates and really there's there's differences across the specifics. But really who stands out right now across all the candidates in that they haven't taken on the same sort of um, Green New Deal language is Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg. And that's an interesting person to get into because he has more than anyone had a real history in climate action. When Trump pulled out of the Paris Accords, Bloomberg was the one to step up and say, wrote out America's pledge and committed to still be the slogan that they came up with was, We're still in. As in, even if the federal government is not going to lead and show that leadership, we as mayors and leaders of city municipalities and state leaders, we can still come together and still show our support and still do what we would have done regardless of who was in the Oval Office. And so he was integral to the C40 city summit, which also shows how local leaders can really come together globally and still implement a lot of On the ground work that needs to happen to see some of these different societal changes across infrastructure, across transportation, across food, um, all of that. So Bloomberg has already a history and an existing project base that he doesn't feel the same need to sign on to the Green New Deal to adopt Inslee's plan. So he's someone really interesting to watch. He also thinks, More than the others that this can be done without getting the legislative branch involved in the same way. And while I can appreciate where that's coming from because it really does align to the urgency of what we need to get done very quickly. We need to be wary of setting a precedent where we don't work across the legislative branches. Obama was hoping to see legislative action happen. And when that didn't happen during his administration, that's when you started seeing the aggressive regulations put, on, put in place through the EPA. We can't wait for that to happen and that's what Bloomberg's trying to avoid. But in the same token, we need to recognize that we have, we have a system in place and it really does require uh, working together and to be able to come up with some sort of collaboration and cooperation across party lines.
0: So um, we, we unfortunately we don't have much more time, but I am curious. Um, so we've, as we both said, uh, pretty much all the candidates say that they're going to do what's necessary to stop the climate crisis. But are there any candidates that stand out as either being very vague about what they intend to do or not prioritizing it in their speeches? Anyone that makes you a little bit uncomfortable about the pro- prospect of them being in charge of our response?
1: Sure, I would say I'm I'm less inspired by Buttigieg and Klobuchar because they have not been able to reach the same um, urgency that is very evident and comes across in some of the other candidates. Even Cory Booker, he really talks about climate change through the lens of environmental justice. He's gonna look at every part of uh, all the sectors that require reform through climate. Those, That's the kind of rhetoric I think is really anticipated by voters, the nine out of 10 that think the government is not doing enough to address climate change. So Buttigieg and Klobuchar could definitely step up their rhetoric a little bit and I'm looking to see if they do that. Um, Amy Klobuchar has also said that she would not necessarily ban fracking and we don't have the luxury of allowing natural gas to continue to be part of the energy portfolio going toward if we're going to get to. Net neutral by 2050, and so the one thing that Bloomberg and others have stated very clearly is that natural gas does not have a place in in that portfolio. Nuclear is still up for debate. Um, nuclear most likely has to be part of the energy portfolio as we think about how we are going to move to a more renewable but stable because we're not willing to give up access to our heat and our air conditioning. We're not gonna be okay with blackouts here and there like a lot of countries deal with. So we still need stable energy as we transition into renewables. And that we know is gonna require nuclear. We already get 20% of our energy in the US from nuclear. So these are the things that I'm okay with, there's still being debate about. But I'm not okay with some of these candidates making clear that there is no room for natural gas.
0: Uh, Well, I wanna thank you so much for joining us. I also wanted to let people know that in addition to um, when we brought you on the show, I mentioned that you are the representative for We Don't Have Time. You also host uh, Risky Behavior and uh, the Climate and Security Podcast. And so uh, thank you for joining us on the show today and uh, breaking down. It's obviously a complex topic, a lot of candidates to talk about, but we really appreciate what you added. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, We're gonna take a short break here, but when we come back, Anna Kasparian will be taking over the show and talking with Dr. Lawrence Lessig after this.
2: Welcome back to The Conversation, I'm your host, Anna Kasparian. And joining us now is Dr. Lawrence Lessig, Larry Lessig, Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: So I've heard every interview that you've done with Cenk Uger, And um, it's crazy that this is the first time that I'm speaking to you one on one, but it's really a, yeah, I'm a pleasure. Yeah, i kind of hurt.
3: It's taken so long.
2: I know, right? So you do such great work when it comes to getting money out of politics. But before we get to that portion of the interview, I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about the work that you've been doing with equal citizens, uh, specifically in representing plaintiffs when it comes to the Ele- Electoral College. and what electors are expected to do when it comes to casting their vote in the presidential election can you discuss that a little bit
3: yeah so what we think is that something's got to happen to move the status quo on the electoral college you know every 4 years we have we come close to a disaster or we have a disaster and then people forget about it and so what we've been thinking about since the last disaster is what do we do to push reform To get it so that we get an electoral college or we get a system for selecting the president that people could be confident in. And the first thing we thought it was important to clarify is whether electors are actually bound to vote the way in which their state tells them to vote. Now, most people think the answer to that question is yes. And most people think that electors will do what their state tells them to do. But the reality is, I think as um, the Supreme Court will confirm when we get to the court, which on Friday we'll discover whether we're gonna go to the court. um, In fact, the framers gave us a system where the electors are free to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so that reality alone should give people a significant interest or motivation for finding a way to fix this antiquated institution. That may have made sense 225 years ago, but um, I think most people would be anxious about today.
2: Right, exactly, because I, th- I believe conventional wisdom is that the electors are going to uh, follow suit with what uh, you know the constituents want, uh, what individuals in that state voted for. But that's not necessarily necessarily the case, and there are conflicting rulings coming from Colorado and Washington state. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
3: Right, so we've been representing electors in both Colorado and in Washington, who in 2016 um, voted their conscience, and then were punished or threatened uh, to be punished um, for their actions. So in Colorado, an elector was kicked off as an elector, and two others were threatened, and in Washington. The electors were fined $1,000 for voting contrary to their pledge. Now, in all of these cases, our clients were people who believed in fact they were acting exactly as the people who voted for them would have wanted them to act. Because they were trying to create a condition where the electoral college decision would have shifted the choice for president into the house, giving people an opportunity to vote for somebody other than Donald Trump. maybe a middle candidate like Kasich or something like that. So they thought they were doing something that was in the right for the purpose of resolving that election. But whether they thought that or not, the view of the state was that they were not allowed to act contrary to their pledge. So in Washington state, the Supreme Court, a year ago, we made the arguments in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court of Washington said, yes, in fact, the electors can be compelled to vote as the state wants them to do. But in the 10th Circuit in Colorado, um, the court wrote, Judge McHugh wrote about a 140-page opinion explaining why it's absolutely clear that the framers intended these electors to be constitutionally free. So that creates the split, which is the uh, urgent need for the Supreme Court to resolve the question. And once the court resolves the question, then it's on us to decide whether the system that was given to us By the 12th Amendment 200 years ago is a system we wanna continue with today.
2: What is the ideal outcome for you? Do you believe that doing away with the Electoral College and relying on the popular vote is the (coughs) best way to go about presidential elections?
3: Look, in my philosopher's dream hat, yeah, absolutely. I think national popular vote is exactly the right way to go, but in my practical, we live in a country with lots of different people hat, I actually think there's a middle position That is much more likely to be adopted as a constitutional amendment and would give national popular vote people like me 95% of what we want. And what that position says is that you should divide the electors in each state proportionally at a fractional level, dividing it between the top two candidates in that state. So for example, if the Democrat got 35% in Montana, the Democrat would get 1.067 uh, electors in Montana, um, or you know, if they got 50% or 45% in in California, they would get half of uh, 45% of the electors in California. But precisely down to whatever significant digit that was. Now, the reason that's as such an important victory is that it would make every state in America count in the ultimate decision for the president. Right now. The only states that candidates care about are the so-called swing states. So Mm -hmm. if you live in California, you don't matter to the presidential candidates, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. If you live in Texas, you don't matter. If you live in New York, you don't matter. The only states that matter are the swing states. So 14 states in 2016 got 95% of campaign visits and 99% of campaign spending. Now the problem with that is that those 14 states don't represent America, they're older, they're wider, their industry is kind of late 19th century industry. So if the President of the United States is trying to win those people, he or she is not trying to win America. So we need a system where the presidential campaign cares about winning votes from every part of this country. National popular vote would get us that. But to get national popular vote with a constitutional amendment would require 30, uh, uh, 38 states to adopt it, which is not likely. But the view that I think we should recognize, the position I'm trying to push, is if we allocated proportionally at a fractional level, that would be uh, almost as good, practically as good as national popular vote, and it would uh, it would uh, bring every American into the project of electing a president, make everybody count equally.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, you say that states like California don't matter to presidential candidates, and you're right when it comes to the Electoral College. Uh, But when it comes to campaign fundraising, uh, you see pretty much every single candidate uh, show up to Beverly Hills and uh, raise money uh, by bundlers and, 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 you know, different campaign events. So let's talk a little bit about money in politics. Uh, That's one of the issues that you've been a real fighter against. And, you know, there's been this narrative, and it's been part of my thought process when it comes to the Democratic establishment, regarding their weakness at the face of, you know Republican aggression, especially during the Trump era. You know, Donald Trump seems to accomplish you know, some of his legislative goals, and it's mind boggling to me to see people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer help him in accomplishing that goal those goals. And I've always thought, well, Democrats are weak, they're not good at messaging. But I've come to just realize that a lot of members of the Democratic Party are funded by the same actors that you see funding Republican campaigns. And so if they're funded by the same people, it's likely they're influenced by the same people. And they're essentially going to work together to accomplish the same legislative goals. And so you have Nancy Pelosi helping Donald Trump when it comes to you know, the tax cuts, when it comes to repealing some of the taxes that were implemented on the private health insurance companies as part of the Affordable Care Act. She has helped Donald Trump in Increasing the military budget. The same day that Donald Trump was, you know, they announced the articles of impeachment against him, less than an hour later, Nancy Pelosi held a press conference and announced that she was working on negotiating with Trump on his signature trade deal in North America. So I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about. Just how influential that money is, is it really a weakness problem with Democrats? Or am I right in, in feeling like the money is really influencing some of the actions behind the scenes?
3: Yeah, well, look, this is a complicated question. On The, the first point is, we shouldn't pretend that there's any equivalence between the Republicans and Democrats here. Um, uh, but we shouldn't pretend that either side is innocent either. They both are dependent on basically the same people, like you know, members of Congress and candidates for Congress, and spend anywhere between thirty and seventy percent of their time raising money, essentially from the same hundred and fifty thousand people. These are the people who fund in a large enough way to make them worth the time of a member, as the members dialing for dollars to raise the money they need to get elected, and the only way that changes is if we fundamentally change the way we fund campaigns. Now, 2020, this election cycle has been extraordinarily exciting on that fight mm-hmm. because we have seen real innovation in talking about how we can fund campaigns publicly. Um you know, I think Andrew Yang was the first out of the box to say he would give every can- every citizen a 100 democracy dollars, democracy vouchers, basically, that they could use to help fund campaigns. Because what he knew is if you do that, then candidates would stop spending so much time talking to the pharmaceutical company representatives or the petroleum or the carbon monopoly people to raise their money. And instead they would start talking to ordinary people to raise their money and they would be dependent on us. So Andrew Yang did that, Kirsten Gillibrand when she was in the race uh, upped it, she was talking about up to $600. But the most exciting thing for me was to be on stage just uh, about a week and a half ago in New Hampshire with Bernie Sanders and um, uh, Zephyr Teach Out. And Bernie Sanders came out forcefully talking about the importance of giving every single voter these democracy vouchers so that they would right from the very beginning of a campaign, be focused on who they should be supporting because they knew they had money to give to those candidates. And even more importantly, those candidates would be focused on ordinary voters rather than thinking about what the millionaires or the billionaires or the people who give large contributions care about. That would be a revolutionary change in how politics works. And it is the most important reform that candidates could be talking about. So it's great that basically everyone, it's not clear where Biden is yet, but Mm -hmm. every one of the major candidates is talking about fundamental reform. and, And at least seven of them are talking about fundamental reform as the first thing they do. Bernie Sanders made that commitment clearly at the Democracy Town Hall in New Hampshire uh, 10 days ago. Um, But even more exciting is when candidates like Bernie Sanders talk about giving every single voter the the money they need or the vouchers they need to matter to politicians. Because look, politicians are gonna go where the money is. And if the money is with the lobbyists, that's where they're gonna go. He who pays the piper calls the tune. And we've just got to give ordinary people the ability to be paying the pipers so that they can call the tune, that's what democracy is supposed to be about.
2: Absolutely, and if it weren't for the work uh, that you do, the work that Jenk Yuger does, uh, I don't think that there would be as much pressure on, on politicians to reject corporate PAC money and run these clean campaigns. Uh, Dr. Lessig, thank you so much for joining us, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, and it's a greater pleasure to be able to interview you for the first time.
3: Thanks, Hannah, it's great to be here, thanks.
2: Thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you for watching. Uh, If you are a member, the post game is next. If you're not a member, please help to support the show. Become a member by going to tyt.com slash join. We'll be right back.